This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. For brand new episodes delivered directly to you every Thursday, make sure to subscribe via your chosen podcast feed. Now, when we think of Stonehenge, we don't automatically think of flowers. But in 1842, the site played host to a huge dahlia show, attended by up to 10,000 people. And it's this event which is being remembered and recreated over four days this autumn. English Heritage Landscape Advisor and Historian Louise Crawley and Archivist for the National Dahlia Society, David Brown, join us now to talk about this. So this is a surprising association, Louise. Can you take us back to 1842 and what people would have seen at the site on Salisbury Plain in southwest England? Yes, so we're looking back almost 180 years ago, back to 1842. Queen Victoria is still a relatively new queen. She's been on the throne almost five years Britain's already in the grips of the Industrial Revolution that had begun in the previous century. And out in the countryside where we'll find Stonehenge, we're still very much in the domain of big estates and country houses. And Stonehenge stood on part of the Antrobus family estate in the 1840s. It's been a site of sort of interest to antiquarians for much of the previous century who painted and drew the site and hypothesised theories about the stones, how they got there and who put them there. But it's in no way a huge tourist destination at this point. It's not until the railways reach this part of the world that tourists in large numbers are actually coming to see the stones. And as for the stones themselves, the site that you see today wasn't quite the same in the 1840s. Uh, You'd be familiar with photographs of archaeologists raising some of the stones in the 1950s. So Stonehenge, as it appears now, is actually largely down to those changes that they made, most famously reconstructing an entire trilithon, so one of those two upright stones with the lintel stone on the top. So if you'd been a visitor to Stonehenge in 1842, not all of the stones you see today would have been upright and balanced in the iconic shapes that they are now. And yes, Stonehenge provided the venue for Dahlia shows. So if you imagine tents and marquees set up within sight of the stones and really the kind of lively atmosphere of a fete with up to 10,000 people in attendance, which is perhaps not at all what we might associate with the atmosphere of Salisbury Plain or Stonehenge today, unless you're visiting during the solstice, I think. Can you describe as well the road structures? You mentioned the arrival of the railways, but the A303 is the famous road that many people will know because it goes past the stones. Could you describe if that was there at this time? Yes. So the road that as you say, we know is the A303 that runs right past the stones, was constructed in the early 1800s. It's a new coaching road. They call it the new direct road. And that's for coaches running from London down to Exeter. So although we might think of Stonehenge being sort of fairly remote, it's actually very much a local landmark that you would see if you're traveling through this part of the world. So you're still sort of accessible by people by carriage and wagon, but you've not got the hordes of people rushing in that are brought by sort of the railways later on. Of course, Stonehenge is fairly remote. So why was it decided to host this Dahlia show there? Well, we know thanks to research by uh, historian Brian Edwards, who's been helping us with this project, that Dahlia shows had been held in the Salisbury area before they came to Stonehenge. So the Salisbury Plain Dahlia Society was set up in 1838 solely to organise a Dahlia show in the area. And the first shows actually took place on a different estate belonging to the Astley family where they were held in the grounds of an inn owned by the estate. And a pub or a, the grounds of an inn are a much more usual venue to hold a flower show. And there's quite a long history of that association going back into the 17th century, if not earlier. 
So Dahlia shows were held annually at this pub with about a thousand people turning up. So it must have been quite busy until 1842, where Sir John Astley sadly dies. And we think the Salisbury Plain Dahlia Society then were quite instrumental in the move towards showing Dahlia's at Stonehenge on the on the Antrobus family estate. Stonehenge itself actually had a cricket pitch, and as well as being a local landmark, you know, it's a, a place people do come to, even though it's not the big tourist attraction we're talking about. Crowds of people may have come to watch cricket matches. So perhaps part of the attraction of holding a Dahlia show at Stonehenge is that they knew crowds would come and watch the cricket. Stonehenge is a known local landmark that you could get to via the road. But it was definitely recognised at the time that it was unusual to hold a flower show at the Stones. And the papers advertised it as a great novelty because it was taking place at Stonehenge. Gosh, that's so funny to listen to. It's so quintessentially English, isn't it? It's beautiful, isn't it? You can just imagine the cucumber sandwiches. And and I find it interesting that um, the papers were commenting that it was unusual to have a Dahlia show, but yet it would have been usual to have cricket there, which sounds alien to us, I think, doesn't it? Um, yes, very much so. <laughs> yes. So was this 1842 Dahlia show the only one held at Stonehenge in this century, in the 1800s? Well, we know there was actually a smaller Dahlia show was held at Stonehenge the year before in 1841. And that was set up by John Keynes, who was a local nurseryman and a specialist Dahlia grower. But he was also honorary secretary to the Salisbury Plain Dahlia Society. And coincidentally, was actually the grandfather of the famous economist John Maynard Keynes, who we're probably much more familiar with. And we think that John Keynes was probably quite crucial in moving the Society Dahlia show down to Stonehenge after the death of Sir Astley probably because he had experience of showing his own dahlias on the site the year before. And then the dahlia show itself took place at Stonehenge every year from 1842 until 1845, and it always attracted enormous crowds. Right, okay. Three years of shows, is that right? Four years of shows, so 1842 itself, and then all the way through to 1845. Okay. When did the shows take place during the year, and also over how many days? So because dahlias flower from the summer right into early autumn, a dahlia show could take place as one of the last in the sort of yearly flower show calendar, if you like. So at Stonehenge, the first show took place on the 31st of August and the subsequent ones were all around the same time, very late August or early September. And they're all one day shows. So we have accounts of the weather. They always included the weather report in the newspaper articles as well. <laughs> and luckily, the weather was recorded each time as being fine for the one day. But there were marquees and tents set up just in case, just to make sure the show could go on in the rain. And I think that's happened ever since, isn't it? At flower shows across the country. We talked in the introduction there about up to 10,000 people coming to the 1842 showing. So was it popular in 1841 and then afterwards as well? So that first little show that occurs in 1841 would have had far fewer people, we think, but around 10,000 people. This seems to be around the number that are turning up over subsequent years, between five and 10,000 people. In 1843, they actually issue a notice. So this is the second year of the big show at the Stones, which says, it is respectfully requested that no vehicles, booths or standings may be placed within 50 yards of the Stones so that all parties may have access to them. So it's obviously getting very crowded and it just shows quite how close they were to the monument as well. Um, and we also have reports on Dahlia show days that it's just impossible to get a carriage in the local area because they're all being taken up with taking visitors down to the show. Apart from this flower show element then, was there other entertainment? You mentioned the cricket, but I, I'm presuming there was food and drink, perhaps music? 
Yes, yeah. So they have the cricket pitch and the cricket match is advertised in the centre of the sort of advert put in the papers to attract people to come and visit. So it's very much part of the entertainment. But it also says there was a band, so there would have been live music playing throughout the show. Of course, you can visit the competition entry dahlias and compare the entries, whilst thousands of other dahlias are used to construct floral devices or flower sculptures. And these are a really big part of the show as well. And you mentioned food and drink, of course. You could buy a ticket which included dinner. And this seems to have been very much part of the attraction that you didn't want to miss because the newspapers are advertising that dinner will be on the table precisely at three o'clock. So you, you don't want to be late, otherwise you might miss your daily show dinner. And these are really sort of great happenings and important local people of the day showed up to attend and be seen at this event. So they're, they're really important social occasions as well. That's a lot of food to prepare, isn't it? It almost sounds like a... Um, well, if you buy your ticket in advance, I suppose they, they know who to cater for. Yes, exactly. But um, that's a lot of mouths to feed, potentially, isn't it? If you've got up to 10,000 people attending. That's a lot of preparation. And um, I mean, I'm, I've just got visions of horses and carts arriving the day before, perhaps, to set up and, and that sort of thing. Do we know anything about that? I imagine there would have to be a great deal of preparation, although we've said, you know, Stonehenge is accessible by road. It's not necessarily close. You have to bring everything up to site, I suppose. But we only really, the stuff we're going off of is contemporary newspaper reports of people visiting on the day and sort of reflecting back. So sadly, we kind of lack the sort of setting up element of things. But dinner being part of a flower show, again, is one of those quite sort of historical connotations. So when the flower shows are being held in inns, for example, back in the 17th century and the 18th century, a dinner is very much part of the occasion. So there's there's probably quite a strong connection there that they'd want to include something, even if they can't possibly cater for everybody. How were the dahlias actually arranged? Were they within the stones or were the, were the stones sort of like cordoned off and, and the stones were more just a focal point for the gathering? So I, I think the stones we could probably consider more of a focal point, especially because we have that notice that kind of sort of says, please keep your tents and your marquees away from the stones. So I think they're sort of providing the backdrop. And it's a, a very large open area, of course, where you can gather lots of people. The flowers themselves would have been arranged within the marquees on competition display tables. And I, I'm sure David will tell us more about this later as to how dahlias are actually displayed for judging, because it's one of the things that, although there have been some changes, flower shows of long, long tradition set in them as well. Yes. Well, let's bring in archivist for the National Dahlia Society, David Brown, now. David, for people who aren't familiar with this beautiful flower, can you describe it? Yes, only too pleased to. The varieties of dahlias is considerable, from very large flowers up to 10 or 12 inches in diameter, decorative cactus, semi-cactus, to little small 12-inch high lilliput dahlias. This is what makes them attractive to people, that the variety of types, classes we call them, variable, so they can fit into any garden depending on its size, big estates. Initially, dahlias would have been grown mainly by the gentry with their head gardeners. And I think these were probably the main people that attended the Stonehenge Dahlia Show. Bear in mind that dahlias had only been in being in the UK from about 1804. So strides in producing them had been quite considerable over the next 30 or so years. Absolutely. So I suppose a vogue plant, a, a vogue flower 
to get interested in and get into your garden. They come in different colours, don't they? Yes, it being a fairly new plant to the UK, because it came originally from Mexico through to Spain, from the conquistadors sent seed and tubers through to Europe and eventually to the UK. The colours of dahlias are so bright, they attract people and are very colourful, especially for mixed borders in gardens or patio pots. And as I say, they vary in size, both in flower and height. And uh, the evolving of dahlias over the last 200 years or so has been considerable. People of those days would hardly recognize now what is shown. I'm looking at some pictures right now through one of the search engines and we've got so many different colours. We've got oranges and violets and purples and pinks, um, yellows, I think, as well. A sort of apricot colour. And all the petals are very different shapes as well. So they sort of range from sort of really long, curved, almost banana-type shapes with different hues of colours, ranging from violet to white, to shapes that look like they're verging on a sphere. Yes, it's true that, uh, as I said, they've evolved so much over the last few years that they wouldn't recognise them back on the show site in 1842. They would mainly have shown what we would call ball dahlias. They were called show dahlias. Later to become show and fancy dahlias. Show dahlias were self-colours and fancy dahlias were variegated, spotted, bicoloured and uh, all of a ball shape, as I've said. The only other dahlias that were around probably at that time were single dahlias, which had evolved through cross-pollination of the original species dahlias and uh, other types came along over years after. And in fact, uh, the show people were very reluctant for many years to put other shapes and types of dahlias into their show schedules and kept mainly to show dahlias and a few classes for single ones. How did these dahlia shows first come about then? What were the reasons for the growth in popularity? It was a new flower and it was gradually being grown by nurserymen such as Keynes and others. And this band of nurserymen worked very hard to make the dahlia popular. But it wasn't until later in the 19th century that the ordinary people in their garden were able to grow them. It was not unknown in the early days for a stock of one dahlia to be sold for something like 200 guineas, which of course is a huge amount and the common people would not be able to afford that. And that's why it was mainly shown by gentry and their head gardeners. Right. The only colour, of course, that dahlias haven't been able to produce is a blue one, a bit like roses. So it's, it's a luxury flower, effectively. Well, it was, but now, of course, you find dahlias growing in every sort of garden, 
cottage gardens, estate gardens, and it is just so striking. It's the first people see in a garden because of its variable colours and shapes. Yes, and its height, which can really grab your attention as well. What happens then in a dahlia competition? How would it have worked at Stonehenge in 1842? Well, Louise may have more answers, but every show, the, the people producing and putting on a show would produce what they call a schedule which would have classes of dahlias for various numbers. And in those days, they were grown and shown on on boards, not vases. So the boards, in some cases, had 72 blooms on a board with the stems going through the board into a funnel containing water. And so the schedule would decide which classes you would enter if it's 70 dahlias or 10 dahlias or whatever, and the types of dahlias. And this has always been and is now quite a wide range of classes in dahlia shows of these days, where it caters now for all types of dahlias and different sizes of blooms. And as I said, different types of uh, dahlias, which... Some people specialize in small dahlias, others huge giant dahlias. This is flower size I'm talking about. So you, your shows today are multi-class and very interesting to go around and see all the different types and all the different colors. What are the judges looking for then when they are assessing dahlias for whatever criteria? Obviously, first of all, that the dahlias entered in the class meet the schedule. In other words, they've got to be as stated by the show organisers in their schedule. The judges then, after they've checked that they're all correct, look at the shapes of bloom, the colours, that they're fairly even. Of course, with variegated ones, it's, you can't have them all the same what you can see of the stem, and uh, the sizes are fairly uniform for each class. It's moved on, of course. Now dahlias are shown in vases because strength of stem and things like that come into play. Is the organisation of a dahlia show and the judging today the same as it would have been in the past? Well, because of the different types of dahlias now, of course, as I said, the range is far greater. But they would, of course, had local nurserymen or growers probably to judge at Stonehenge. Louise may know more about this. The classes, of course, were more limited because there were only the ball dahlias or show dahlias, as they were called, and some classes for single. So it's moved on so much because of the evolving of dahlias over the last 200 years or so. So back in 1842, Louise, who was growing these dahlias and also where were they grown? I'm presuming it's the sort of uh, gardeners of the rich landowners. They're mostly grown by 
head gardeners and gardeners on landed estates. They're also grown by nurserymen because they give them the opportunity to raise new varieties of new plants, which is a really exciting opportunity for a nurseryman. It's very sort of commercially appealing as well. But the first dahlia seeds that are sent over to England, although early growers are able to get them to flower, they can't really keep them over winter because they're so susceptible to the frosts. So you, you really, by the time we've actually sort of managed to keep them over winter, you need to have the facilities, I suppose, to keep dahlias going. So you need a commercial nursery or you, you need the landed estate with the glass houses where you can keep them over the winter. And they really are such a statement flower that are relatively easy to hybridize. So because growers could soon produce these big sort of voluminous different shapes of flowers and all sorts of different colours, there's really part of the appeal of you can name the resulting flower. So as I say, it's a very sort of commercially attractive bloom to be growing. And they're very much a competitive showing flower. And that seems to be part of the early attraction for them. Quite a luxurious statement. Yes, that's it, isn't it, really? It's, it's novelty and luxury and beauty, I suppose. And yes. eventually... Eventually, through evolution and hybridisation, as you've described, variety. And there's an incredible array of these flowers are being produced. As David was saying, we, we're starting off with um, very sort of simple flower shapes that have arrived at the early 19th century. And within 40 years, they're showing all sorts of extravagant different colours. And we have 19th century catalogues of dahlias that list the new varieties grown each year, often accompanied with these beautiful watercolour illustrations. And they're listed by the nurseries or the gardeners that have raised them. So everything is sort of attributable to I, I've achieved this and look what I can present this year. Gosh, that's amazing. I wonder what Charles Darwin would make of the fact that within 40 years there are different varieties of, of a flower springing up in a place where they weren't even originally growing. So these days, of course, you can buy dahlia seeds or tubers in any garden centre. At what stage did they become a flower for everybody to grow and enjoy, David? Well, it would have been probably the early 20th century when they became affordable by cottage garden people and gardens in general were able then to start to afford them. And of course, the range was getting larger and larger. There were more people growing them commercially, supplying to the general public. And over the first part of the 20th century, there were a limited number of people showing but between the last two wars, dahlias became more and more popular. And in, uh, after the Second World War, they were extremely popular in the 40s, 50s and 60s. They started to lose their position in favoritism in the garden in the 70s. And this continued through until the early 2000s. Now, of course, they are very, very popular again. I think because of the range of shapes and colors and sizes, and also relatively cheap now for people to purchase in packets or seeds. There are some specialist dahlia nurseries still in being who provide wonderful either rooted cuttings or plants. And so it's now open house for dahlias. And uh, although they lost their popularity, which a lot of plants do from time to time, they've evolved again and are now, as I say, extremely popular and used for floral decoration and uh, color in the garden, of course, weddings, all sorts of things where 
flowers are now required for banquets and things, table decorations, and you see dahlias from August through until the early frosts, really, in October. So a huge range, very popular and loved by people. So they're a good flower to have late summer, giving nice colour to your garden as the seasons begin to change. Very much so. The shows, of course, start from August through until end of September, basically. People now from all walks of life show their dahlias. It's not just nurserymen or big growers. There are classes now for all numbers of people that perhaps only grow a few in their garden. Mm. So it's open house now for dahlias. Yes, it's a great advert for them, isn't it, doing this podcast? And I think there's going to be lots of people, individual gardeners and families listening and thinking, ah, this is the way we can sort of extend our summer, keep our mood up, uh, you know, as the nights start to draw in in the autumn. How do we know all of this information that you've been describing then, David? I mean, about the history of the dahlia. Well, I'm in a situation where I'm putting a book together about the history of the dahlia in the UK. So I've done a tremendous amount of research. Going back to the early days, in 1836, there was a dahlia register drawn up by what is known as an amateur, and it contains lithograph-coloured pictures of show dahlias, or show and fancy dahlias as they were to become, which are amazing. And I've done quite a lot of research into Gardner's Chronicles going back into the 1840s and people who have written books in early days and so on. So if one goes online, you can find an unlimited amount of information And as Louise said, the catalogues that are available to be viewed or downloaded, both in this country, in Europe, America. So they are now widely known, or can be, if people bother to read up about them, and uh, the history of them, comparatively short, of course, compared with many plants and flowers. So... It's a bit easier, perhaps, to look up their history. And it is the national flower of Mexico. As I said earlier, the seeds and tubers came from Mexico, and the Spanish especially were very quick to learn how to grow them and pass this information and stock, of course, to other parts of Europe and the UK. So, yes, there's unlimited knowledge out there in books and catalogues online or by hand. I've got quite a good collection of old dahlia books I've put together, which I'm donating to the National Dahlia Society, which I, of course, use also for my research. It's a fascinating floral history. We've already talked about how the varieties have changed over the centuries. And you did say earlier, David, that the ones that would have been seen and displayed at Stonehenge in the 1840s would be different from the ones that people can grow today. Specifically, how how have they changed? Have they just basically changed from sort of the ball shape to 
different varieties and and different colours. I think that um, dahlia flowers, dahlia plants have evolved, as I said before, and they're perhaps more refined now than they were in those days. It was early days. We still grow ball dahlias, but they're perhaps a bit more refined than the old show dahlias, which were ball-shaped. Single dahlias have always been and are still are available. So, yes, it's just that the shapes and colors have evolved by nurserymen and plant breeders, both in this country and other countries. We've seen dahlias in the UK from Japan and uh, Europe and America. And of course, our dahlias have gone to other parts of the world as well. And I think it's just the variety now, the classes of dahlias, which is huge. And in some cases, it's almost too quick because what is new today is old tomorrow. Mm. And a lot of nice dahlias over many years have disappeared because of new ones becoming available for people to buy and grow. It's a difficult thing to know what ones to keep when there are so many coming onto the market. Some are just available and best suited just for garden growing, and others are more suited for being suitable for showing. So unlimited varieties are available. Let's talk about how to win at a daily flower show. Um, we'll bring Louise back in for this one. How would one have tried to win in the 1840s displaying at Stonehenge? So as David sort of said today, there's lots and lots of different categories today because that recognises the variety of dahlias that are being grown and on show. And back in the 1840s, that variety was much more limited to the, the show and, and later, as David said, the fancy dahlias. So the categories tended to be more organised by the type of person who'd entered the bloom into the competition. So in order to win a dahlia show, you have to enter the competition that matches your category. In the 1842 Stonehenge dahlia show, categories included blooms submitted by nurserymen, submitted by amateurs, and those submitted by professional gardeners. So that kind of reflects again, as we were saying earlier, about the kind of people who were growing dahlias at the time. And there's also a class for seedlings and a class for floral devices or the flower sculptures we spoke about earlier that are a big feature of the shows. But the actual requirements for winning haven't changed very much really from what David was saying are still the same today. Your blooms have to be of outstanding quality and they have to be the sort of expected right size and they can't have imperfections to the petals. This really has to be the absolute sort of cream of your crop of dahlias that you've grown this year. And they also need to be out at the right time. So that's, I imagine, David, quite a difficult thing to achieve. You need to have your dahlia at the perfect point of the flower blooming just before it's starting to show signs of going over. But you don't want them out too early either, so they might be still quite tightly in bud. What do you think of that, David? Yes, well, I know a lot of our top exhibitors grow dahlias undercover, and so they don't get weather-damaged or spotted. They also have a method of stopping dahlias by pinching out the centre bud and possibly some side buds so that they can control the speed of growing to get the dahlias to come out at the right time. And so they are 
quite professional in what they do. And it's amazing that given the period from perhaps towards the end of August through to the end of September, how wonderful our exhibitors are to produce time after time wonderful blooms for showing and win, of course, many of them. There are classes for in local shows for the amateur exhibitor. People in the villages and small towns can take along their bunches of dahlias and show in the right classes, which are determined, of course, by the show organizers. So you can get vases of dahlias with other foliage or single bloom vases and things like that. So it's not all difficult. And people who are interested can tap the expertise of these top exhibitors and gradually learn themselves how they can become and take their place in time. Do we have a record of the winners from 1842 at Stonehenge, Louise? Yes. So fortunately, as David was saying earlier, this is really the period in which we have lots of records being kept. And there's a wealth of sources of information about this time period and the topic. So we've got provincial newspapers which are reporting on garden shows and flower shows, but also there's the new gardening press which starts to emerge around this time. So you have sort of essentially magazines being produced for people interested in horticulture, mostly targeted at nurserymen, but also people with landed estates are reading them as well. And they, they are accessible for more ordinary people too. But the provincial newspapers and the gardening press nearly always report in great detail on local flower shows. And they become sort of a big feature. People seem to want to read about them. And part of that is reporting the prize winners because you want your name in the paper, really. Um, Mm -hmm. So these are usually just lists of names, but sometimes with the prize that they won as well. Uh, It might be very good quality cutlery, some of the early prizes, or a silver cup. Or uh, later on, as the shows get bigger, and particularly at national shows, you tend to win sums of money as well. So at Stonehenge in 1842, we know that Thomas Brown won the category for blooms submitted by nurserymen. And Brown actually entered blooms at a huge number of shows in 1842 and was a very serious competitor and he ran his family's nursery near Slough, which had been established in 1774. Mm-hmm. And he's one of these who's really very competitive about showing. We know that he paid 100 guineas for a dahlia in 1842 as well. So he's really serious about having the best quality stock and blooms. Other winners in 1842 included William Whale, who won the seedling category. And he was a head gardener at a landed estate. And he was known for raising some of the best dahlias in cultivation. He had this reputation. And he also wrote in the gardening press as well. But one of his dahlias included the Hero of Stonehenge, uh, which was this gorgeous dark mulberry colour dahlia. It was actually first grown in 1841, but only really becomes widely recognised and celebrated in 1842. That's amazing. So if you want to get into the history books, (laughs) make sure that you are growing a winning flower at an event and, and you can become mentioned in a periodical and you can go into the history books. You can almost live forever, I suppose. It's incredible what we can find out about these nurserymen. I don't know, David, whether you think people will be studying, people showing dahlias today, whether they'll be studied in the century's time. Well, I don't know, of course. I mean, I'm 86. I've been involved in dahlias since I was 10 years old, just after the last war. And uh, I've seen huge changes even in my lifetime to, uh, I remember, at still seeing dahlias shown on a board 
in uh, the national show in 1947. And uh, as I say, I've been involved in dahlias ever since. So I've seen tremendous changes. I've seen the types of dahlia growers have changed. It's now open to all. It was, after the last war, fairly limited because it took time for other people to get involved. And I think this is why from the 40s to the early 70s, dahlias became popular because more people were growing them and enjoying them. But as I said, like a lot of other plants, they lost in favor and it wasn't till probably the last 20 years that they've gradually increased again in popularity. And you see them in most gardens now used for all sorts of different things. So, yes, it's, it's a wonderful flower and so versatile. What causes a dahlia to fall out of fashion then, David, or, or a flower in general? Well, possibly other roses, of course, have always been popular, but they're not uh, quite so popular now. But they were popular in the uh, late uh, 20th century. And croissants have lost their popularity. It's just a fashion thing that people go for something that looks new, is bright, cheerful. And uh, if it loses favor, it does. And it takes a while for it to come back into vogue again. So it's the search for novelty and color and difference and just something to occupy the gardener's interest, I suppose, to keep things looking fresh and interesting. Yes, I think that's the case, that uh, with the new types of dahlia that are now available for anybody, as we said earlier, from garden centres, hardware stores even, but there are specialist nurseries, very good ones if you look online. And I think that the advertising now by the National Dahlia Society and other societies have made them become popular again. Plus, as I've said many times, the variety of color and shape and size. How various will the Stonehenge Dahlia exhibition, which is taking place at Stonehenge this year in 2023, how different will that be and how will it look to visitors, Louise? Well, I guess we're, we're trying to recapture the spirit of the shows that were held at Stonehenge, but bring them back up to date for visitors today. So you'll get the chance to see dahlias at Stonehenge once again. We're going to be working with uh, eight local flower clubs who are going to be creating floral devices or flower sculptures. So that part of the show will still be there. And you'll get to watch as these devices are created. Perhaps that's a sort of sneak behind the curtain that you perhaps wouldn't have seen back in the 1840s. Then from Friday through to the Sunday, visitors to Stonehenge will be able to see multiple flower sculptures and a small flower show featuring blooms from local dahlia growers. So that's the part that we're really kind of recapturing that sort of the dahlia show element of it. And these local dahlia growers are going to be providing us with um, their blooms to have a sort of mini competition. You can learn more about the history of dahlias at Stonehenge from a mini exhibition we're going to be putting together. And then bringing it up to date, you can take photographs of yourselves in front of dahlia sculptures wearing stunning floral crowns, which I'm sure back in the Victorian period they would have done given the opportunity. 
So will they be quite large, sort of wreath size or bigger, or will they even look like trilithons, for example? Will they, will there be displays that look like they've been arranged in the shape of Stonehenge, for example? Yes. So this is one of the things we're looking for is we're going to be creating these really quite large sculptures. Hopefully won't give away too much of the surprise when we get okay. there. Um, but yes, really large sculptures to take your photograph in front of, inspired by Stonehenge. That's a really great photo op, isn't it, for those Instagrammers out there? Definitely. Um, okay. And um, I think you used the term floral device earlier. What What is that? Is that just a, a sculpture of flowers, effectively? Yeah, so it is essentially a sculpture that would have been created out of a sort of wire or a, a similar structure, which flowers are then inserted into. And in the 19th century, these really seem to become, they sort of take off as a phenomenon, but we have very limited illustrations of them, sadly. So they're not something that seems to have been around for very long. But at the Stonehenge Dahlia show, where these would have been made entirely out of dahlias, they use thousands and thousands of blooms. And they're really intended to be these sort of extraordinary displays that wow visitors into how something like this could be achieved in flowers. And we think there's possibly a connection between competition dahlia growing and these floral devices, because in order to show your perfect dahlia, presumably you've got lots that didn't quite make the cut. Mm -hmm. So perhaps these dahlias might be better used in, in these floral displays where the little imperfections don't show quite so much. But they're a way for nurserymen and florists to demonstrate their skills, but also sort of the loyalty and um, patriotism that they have in the subjects that they're choosing. So John Keynes, who we mentioned earlier, he actually won the prize in 1842 for his floral device. And he called it the Antrobus Arms. And we think it was probably the coat of arms of the Antrobus family uh -huh. um, that was in full display of the show and is obviously in honour of the show's patron. So he, he knows what subject to be creating in flowers in order to win first prize. Very clever. Um, yeah. Very clever. <laughs> Uh, and the following year, he makes one called Queen and Constitution, which is obviously in honour of Queen Victoria. And we found other records earlier on, which showed that he'd been, you know, was quite a regular in making floral devices. They seem to be part of his speciality. And they're definitely part of the attraction of the flower show for the 19th century visitor. But their popularity, as we say, it seems to wane a bit. We don't have illustrations of them, so we don't know how long they really were in vogue for. And writers in the popular gardening press refer to floral devices as monstrosities. So they seem to think that they're actually sort of bringing down the tone of the flower show. And they're actually criticising the fact that floral devices are awarded prizes because this is only encouraging them to become more outrageous the next year. So they're quite adamant that they should be removed from the flower shows. And yet things move on, don't they? Fashions change, tastes change, and people like to look at new things. And uh, these floral devices are very stimulating, aren't they? They're very attractive to look at. I'd love to see one that's... Um, the Amesbury Archer or something like that. I think that would be a fascinating shape. What are the dates of the show for this year, Louise? So you can come and see the local flower groups constructing their floral sculptures on Thursday the 28th of September. And then the actual exhibition with the mini dahlia show, the floral displays and the exhibition panels, that will all be in place Friday the 29th of September until Sunday the 1st of October. So make sure you come along during those days and you can experience the return of dahlias to Stonehenge as we bring this sort of slightly more unusual chapter of Stonehenge's story back to life. And if anyone is catching this podcast miraculously on a trip down to the southwest and they're going along the A303 and want to pop in, I think it'd be a great way to sort of, um, you know, see what we've been talking about. I can already imagine all the colours. And do you think we'll have um, an exhibition of dahlias again in 2024 or future years? Perhaps we'll have to see how successful we go with this one. I don't know. Shall we draw tr crowds of 10,000 people as they did in 1842? We give it a go. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so.
What are the benefits then to the environment and for people who are interested in taking something away from this podcast and growing their own dahlias in their gardens? Louise, first of all. Because as we said, dahlias flower right into early autumn. So they're actually really important for pollinators when a lot of other summer flowers have already finished. So they're a lovely flower to include in your garden for yourself, but you're also benefiting the environment and the local wildlife by featuring them as well. And David's spoken a bit about the differences between today we have single and double dahlias. And it's quite important to make sure you grow some of those single varieties as well. They look more like a sort of daisy flower because they're much more open. So it's easier for the pollinators to access the nectar. So if you're, you're thinking about what types of dahlia you might grow, perhaps consider bringing in some of those single varieties as well. And David, what do you think dahlias can bring to the environment if people are interested in taking up the hobby of growing them? Well, I really echo what Louise has said. The collarette types, which is a single dahlia with a, an internal collar of smaller petals, Butterflies and bees love them as they do the single ones and also open-centered blooms that are perhaps going over. It's just a haven for insects and uh, butterflies and bees of all types, of course. And also how exciting in a garden to see the color. And uh, I really recommend anybody who's listening that to grow a few dahlias to start and see how you get on with them. Plenty of knowledge out there, as I've said, and it's good for the garden to attract these insects, uh, all the different types of butterflies you get and great big bumblebees and things. Yes, fantastic for the environment. And they're a good investment as well, aren't they, David? Because if you buy your dahlia plant and you can keep it over winter, you can replant it and grow it again next year. Well, yes, you you can. You've just got to make sure it's frost-free if you lift it. A lot of people are leaving them in now because our winters are not so hard as they used to be, although this last winter was quite hard at times. But if you mulch over, once you've cut them down, and put a thick mulch over of uh, with compost or manure or something like that the frost won't get down into the tubers but those of you that live in a frost area you lift them keep them in a frost-free environment keep checking them i used to put mine into open slatted boxes so that they got the air and reasonably dry and so you then and if your tuber is large, you can divide it for the next year as long as you've got the growing eyes at the base of the stem and plant out two the next year and so on. That's how a lot of people increase their stock. They don't have to buy each year, but the real enthusiast will always look for what's new. So, yes, wonderful for the garden. That's very valuable advice. Thank you, David. I really appreciate your years of experience with that one. The other thing I suppose to say is that, apart from them being a, a fantastic feast for the senses, is that it's great to sort of be nurturing something, looking after something, and uh, it helps relieve, relieve stress, doesn't it? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I think that it is. It's, uh, and retired people as well that, uh, you know, need things to do after giving up some different types of work of course 
it gives them relaxation in the garden and uh, I think it's a wonderful thing and there's a lot of society now for mind and other things that recommend gardening, growing flowers and even vegetables of course. It takes the stress out of life, very helpful and you've got people out there from all walks of life that will help you. So yes, it is a a stress-free, hopefully, stress-free hobby. Hobby, yes. As long as they grow and um, flower nicely, I suppose. But um, yes, even if you're not growing them, they're, they're lovely to look at, and that's a real soothing thing, I think, for anyone who's feeling a bit stressed. Will you both be at the Stonehenge Dahlia Exhibition 2023? Can people pick your brains? Well, I certainly will, God willing. (laughs) At 86, I take one day at a time. But of course, I'd love to be there. And and I'm hoping to be able to help people there to grow dahlias and answer any questions they may have of dahlia people. There'll also be, I'm sure, people from the local society. And Louise, I'm sure, will be there. She'll tell you in a minute. But Yes, we're going to be there to encourage and help people and hope they enjoy what they see. Are you going to be there, Louise, then? Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing the Dahlia sculptures being put together by the local flower clubs on the Thursday. And I'll be around on the Friday as well if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about both the history of Dahlias and, and about the flower show, really. So visitors will really get some value for money if they're not just looking at the flowers and smelling them and enjoying the sight of them, they can learn a lot from having expert tutors on site as well. Absolutely. (laughs) We'll try. (laughs) You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be marking the end of a multi-million pound restoration project at Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens in Northumberland. We had several thousand people don a hard hat and (laughs) high-vis jacket and climb the scaffold. It was unique for English Heritage and certainly a first and hopefully the first of many projects where we are able to engage with the public in that way. Thanks for listening. See you next time.